0: Hey everybody, welcome back to Astro Coffee Hangout. My name is Tony Darnell from deepastronomy.space and today we are going to be talking with a member from the Dark Energy Survey collaboration who, among a great many other things, like trying to find out the nature of dark energy, this collaboration is using their observations to do lots of other science, namely to help measure the expansion rate of the universe. And my guest today is Dr. Ed Macaulay, he's from the university of portsmouth in the uk he is a member of the institute of cosmology and gravitation there which is a cool sounding place uh and uh i would like to learn more about what's going on at that institute i'll tell you that so we will and we're going to talk with our guest here today but before i get before i bring him on i just want to say that these hangouts are endorsed by the american astronomical society and they are we every is We're now, even though we're scaling back a little bit, this is only the second, I think, Astro Coffee Hangout for the year. Uh, we are still trying to bring the latest in uh, astronomy uh, discoveries and science to you. And uh, the paper, this paper that we're going to be talking about today, there is a link to the Astroph version of it uh, in the description box. So feel free to click on it and follow along. And if you've got any questions for our guest, you can leave those on the live chat at the because we are streaming on YouTube, Twitch. Twitter or in the form of Periscope and uh, as and uh, Facebook on my uh, Deep Astronomy page as well. And if you use the hashtag, he said, oh, it's not up there yet, but it will be in a minute. Uh, Astro Coffee. I'll take a look at it, especially on Twitter. And uh, I should be seeing all of the comments. Like already on 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 Periscope, I see. Dead living man <laughs> who says cheers from a viewer in Turin, Italy. So welcome, and I can see you guys uh, on all these platforms now. And so please let's interact, and and we can. If you've got any questions about the expansion of the universe, now is your time to bring them up because our guest is an expert on this. And um the dark energy. Let me just give you a little bit of background. The Dark Energy Survey is a ground-based survey that was installed at the there was a camera called the dcam dark energy cam that was thank you peter q says it he can hear me okay that was uh installed on the blanco four meter telescope in uh sierra cerro Tololo observatory down in chile and they had is a It is a, is it a 500 megapixel camera, Ed? I think it is. Yeah,
1: 500 megapixel.
0: Yeah, it's 500 megapixel camera designed for looking at a total of, I think, 5,000 square degrees of sky in the Southern Hemisphere, mostly because that's where the observatory can see uh over 525 nights and they just finished taking that data and they are doing data releases now and they as they process and analyze this data and papers are starting to come out and one of the papers is is one we're going to talk about today people who have been using because there's lots of things you can use these survey data for and we'll talk about that in just a little bit besides just finding dark energy or characterizing dark energy so um Uh, we also just want to mention briefly that we have a discord server at deep astronomy. And the link to that is also in the description box. I'm looking at that, uh, chat as well. And that is a good way to chat after the stream is over. If you watch this on demand, or if you're listening to the audio version of the podcast on deep astronomy's podcast, then you can go on, on discord and let us go. Um, oh, here's a cool question. Um, Fly Purple Cat <laughs> is also on Periscope. Non-astronomer for sure, have watched Tony since his first video. Wow, I just took up questions later. <laughs> well, gosh, I'm really glad to see you, Fly Purple Cat. Thanks for joining us. Okay, let me bring up my guest, Dr. Ed McCauley. He is uh, the, the lead author of a paper that is uh, trying to measure the Hubble uh, expansion rate of the universe. Welcome, Ed. It's good to have you here.
1: Oh, nice. Hi.
0: Yeah. And so why don't we take a little bit of a summary and let's talk about the, uh, the universe since Hubble's time, uh, we've known, has been expanding, correct?
1: Yeah, absolutely. So since, you know, 1929, uh, with uh, Edwin Hubble's observations, uh, yeah, we, we've, we've known that the universe has been uh, expanding. So the distances between galaxies are getting further and further apart.
0: And one question I get a lot about this problem is that, well, if the universe, you know, when we, when we look at galaxies that are expanding away, Hubble looked at many galaxies that were going away, but he, the, 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 the conclusion seems to be that all galaxies are going away from us, but that's not really true. Is it these, these are only the galaxies very far away. The ones close by in our local group, some of those galaxies are actually coming towards us, aren't they?
1: oh yeah sure so there's there's a few sort of subtleties and caveats um to that yeah so our galaxy is, the milky way is part of the uh, the local group so it's a big uh cluster of galaxies um and you know within that the the dynamics of those galaxies is uh quite complicated so for example our, our nearest galaxy uh, andromeda um is in fact coming towards the milky way and eventually they're going to merge so yeah you you have to get out to you know pretty distant galaxies Um, before you get into uh, what's called the sort of Hubble flow. So this is the the kind of, when you're looking at such big regions of space that it's just the overall expansion of the universe is the important thing. And and even something as big as a galaxy cluster is so small that it's kind of not uh, significant.
0: And in order to make these measurements, when Hubble did it, uh, he used something called a standard candle, Let's go ahead and talk about what that is up front. Yeah. Uh, and he used to, there, there are several kinds of which we're gonna talk about both, but talk a little bit about what a standard candle is.
1: Sure, so um, if I could just back up one, moment. so a standard okay. candle is a way to measure um, a distance um, to something out in the universe. And the reason that we spend so much time in cosmology measuring distances is because of the length of time uh, that the light takes to reach us, the fir- by measuring distances, we're essentially looking further and further back into the past. So it allows us to precisely pinpoint how far into the past we're looking. Um, so a standing candle is one of the methods we, we use to measure distances. Um, and the basic idea is, if we think we can understand how much light a star or a galaxy or something is emitting, Intrinsically, we can go and measure in our telescope how many photons we're receiving and then with geometry We can use that to work out how far away that object is and then through the speed of light how uh, How long ago that light left its source? So that's that's the basic idea of a, a standard candle and it relies on us being able to Understand something about the source well enough to figure out how much light it's emitting.
0: Yeah. The key thing is there, if you can know something about its intrinsic brightness, that is how bright something actually is. If you were stand, if you were, if you were like holding a light bulb directly next to a hundred watt light bulb directly next to your face, you would know and feel it's direct energy off of it. And if you move it a hundred feet away, that hundred watt light bulb goes down by the square root. Are uh, one over the square of a hundred feet, uh, or meters? Let's use meters since we're in the real world. And uh, <laughs> then the, uh, and uh, uh, you can you can infer if you know how bright something is right away, and then how right next to you, and how bright something is far away, you can get the distance by that difference in brightness. So the exactly, intrinsic,
1: exactly.
0: the intrinsic and, brightness uh, is important.
1: Yeah. So if you thought, yeah, it's a like, it's hundred watt light bulb. But then maybe uh, it turned out it was a, I don't know, a, a 50 watt light bulb. So it, it's fainter. Then of course you say, okay, well, it must've been closer then to have that same brightness.
0: That's right. Um, yes.
1: But of course in nature, you know, it, it's not quite as it, no one comes along and says, oh, you know, that's a, a 50 watt galaxy or something.
0: Yeah. And let's talk about what kind of, sta- so these are called standard candles. These are things we know how bright things are intrinsically as if we were right there next to them. And there are, there are, I guess there's really only two, isn't there? I, I can't think of more. There are c variables and type yeah. 1A supernovae, right?
1: Um, so I guess those are the, the most established ones. Um, there's a lot of work on trying to get other um, standard candles. So there's um, the possibility we might be able to use active galactic nuclei as some kind of standard candle or other kinds of supernovae as standard candles. But yeah, I, the, the two main ones there, they're c and, uh, and these type 1A uh, supernovae.
0: Okay, and just very briefly, but it's not really the topic of your paper, but Cepheid variables are what Edwin Hubble used yeah, uh, in his paper. And these are variable stars that when you observe them, they have a characteristic brightening and a dimming. They're variable. Mm-hmm. And the period over which they go from bright to dim to bright again uh, is related, correlated to its intrinsic brightness. So you, marry, you measure that variation in brightness and you can get how its actual brightness how bright the star actually is and then it becomes a standard candle. The problem with Cepheid variables though is they <clears throat> you really can't measure them for too far out uh, yeah. in in most cases. But there's another kind and you gave me a great animation which I'm going to show and then if you could talk about it. this is what a, tell us what a type 1 uh, a supernova is.
1: Sure.
0: And this is this is looping as you talk.
1: So so this is the um We've got a, a neutron star um, orbiting a uh, red giant here. Um, so a, a neutron star, it's, uh, it's a very specific uh, kind of star. And a star in general, it's a balance between um, gravity pulling the star in and the, the kind of fusion reaction, which kind of wants to make the star explode. And with a white dwarf, um, when, if that white dwarf gets to a mass um, slightly uh, less than one and a half times the mass of our sun that balance gets upset and the whole thing explodes. So what we see in this movie is that the white dwarf is um, actually accreting um, material off this red giant star and increasing, increasing in mass. And when it gets to that mass, uh, which we call the Chandrasekhar mass, uh, then it explodes and it obliterates the, uh, the red giant that it's orbiting.
0: And this is a standard candle because it explodes at a very specific point, right? Exactly, exactly. As, exactly.
1: as it gets to this see. magic
0: point, 1.44 4 solar masses, an explosion occurs. And from that, we know the energy involved in that explosion. It, in other words, it's intrinsic brightness, right?
1: Mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah, exactly. So that, that, that's, that's the idea of how that's, that becomes a, uh, a standard
0: candle. And the white dwarf part is crucial, to this oh right.
1: yeah exactly that's that's the the source of it um but also um because they only happen when you have put this white dwarf orbiting a uh, red giant you know they're, they're they're not it is not a kind of everyday occurrence right it's, it's a fairly special configuration of stars that you have to get uh, for this to happen
0: and but you were able to see some uh in the dark energy survey time scale uh, you again we you were observing for A total of 525 nights but they weren't all consecutive nights they were spread out throughout a several year period so through that time you were able to capture some type 1a supernovae as they occurred right
1: yeah sure exactly so the um the actual sort of peak of the explosion um takes about um a month or something so in that animation it's actually sped up very quickly you know we always think of explosions as very you know rapid things but these things are so physically large that the explosion takes. Uh, days and weeks. So yeah, we um, monitor the same patch of sky um, separate a a few times a week. And what we observe is points getting brighter and brighter and brighter. um, And then getting dimmer and dimmer and dimmer as the uh, explosion is fading.
0: And I'm now showing that other animation you sent me with with the the light
1: curve. That's a pretty um, nice example of the sort of thing that we're trying to look for. So we see a point of light getting brighter and brighter. And when it reaches that peak, that, that peak brightness is one of the really key things we're looking for. And then we uh, observe the supernova uh, decreasing. So that, that light curve might take you know, a few months roughly to observe.
0: Right. And that goes directly to Hans Milling's question. He's, going, he's asking, how can you be sure that these supernova explosions have the exact same brightness? The mass of these stars must be very different, even though they are similar in size. No two are the same mass. And that's okay, what we—that's yeah, that, so well, what we just great, showed, right? Great,
1: great question. And um, yeah, absolutely. It—it's um because that assumption that these are um have all, all, all the same intrinsic brightness. It's you know it underpins a lot of cosmology. Right? It underpins a lot Yeah, it of does. Dark energy. So, um, one of the ways that we're confident that they've got all got the same brightness is that we're we're very sure from a theoretical point of view that that star is going to be exploding at 1.44 times um, the mass um, of of our sun. So it's almost as if someone said, hey, look, it really is a a 50 watt light bulb. Um, So that really helps us. Um, And we can also um, improve um, how well we can standardize it by looking at how long that light that light curve takes to happen. So how fast the explosion is, and also precisely what the um, color of the explosion is. And by using those two features, we can actually um, calibrate these um, so even better, make them even better standard candles. Because without that, uh, as he said, yeah, there are actually different um, astrophysical features and things which make brightness different, but we can correct for that by looking at extra details that we get from the light curve. And, that's something which has actually really improved supernova cosmology in the past 10, 20 years
0: what would what would be different the type of star that's in orbit around the white dwarf uh, what would, yeah. what would what would cause differences in a type 1A supernova brightness?
1: So um, it's a great question, and that's essentially sort of whole field research that a lot of people spend on. Right time. So
0: tell us all about it in about if you could do that in a couple of minutes, yeah, I'd yeah, appreciate
1: yeah, sure, it. Sure. <laughs> so, um, um, one of the factors is, is maybe the environment that the star is living in could affect the brightness of the explosion. So if the galaxy has a lot of extra dust or a lot of extra heavy elements, maybe that could
0: Oh, feed of course back into yeah explosion okay
1: um, there could be other things like um, th- th- there's some suggestion that maybe all of these Type Ia supernovae um, they're, maybe they're not all um, a red giant and a neutron star maybe they're two neutron stars inspired and then um, crashing into each other so it's a kind that would be a completely sort of different um, uh, explosion Um, I guess those are the the kind of two main things Um, other things which really affect the explosion are we've got a it's essentially a giant thermonuclear um, explosion so very similar physics to what you get in a you know a thermonuclear uh, atomic bomb Um, And just as with the atomic bomb, precisely which elements you have in there, so you know how much calcium and nickel and that sort of stuff, um, that goes into um, the strength of that explosion. So depending on exactly how many elements you have in the red giant, uh, that can also affect the explosion. And it's something we think we can kind of get a handle on by looking at the colour of the explosion. I really do mean that the colour, whether it's red or bluer. I see. Uh, so, so yeah, it's, it's definitely something we're thinking about and it's definitely something that we want to test um, as, as much as we can.
0: Well, that sounds like a, a, a question that you just answered a question that Therion was asking about the metallicity of stars being involved uh, in, 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 in the supernova brightness. So you're just saying that, yes, it can, it, it, the, oh, yeah, the metallicity yeah, exactly. of a star. Okay. All right. Well, um, all right. So the, the, so we've, we've gone over what these scan, these standard candles are. We, and now, which is important because we need to know how bright they actually are. Mm-hmm. And that tells us how much energy is there. And we can use the inverse square law, I guess, <laughs> uh, yeah. to, to yeah. say yeah. how far away it is. But we also use redshift uh, yeah. in addition to that, right? How does redshift play a role in, in getting oh, those Yeah,
1: absolutely. So um, essentially Hubble's law, What the thing Hubble discovered, is that there's a direct relation between the distance of a galaxy... Um, and it's redshift. So it's redshift is um, how much the light from that source has got stretched out. Um, So how much has become redder. So if the light was emitted, maybe yellow or blue, um, that light gets stretched out. Um, So something I'll I'll just mention about redshift because it's a a very um, misunderstood thing. And actually when it was first discovered, um, a lot of astronomers thought that this was due to a a Doppler shift because these things were all moving away. and a lot of people do think about redshift that way, but it's actually a gravitational redshift. So as the distances between um, two galaxies are getting further and further away due to the expansion of the universe, um, it's essentially acting exactly like a gravitational redshift that you get when a photon's climbing out of a star or something like that. So the wavelength of the photon gets stretched out and it gets to redder and Wavelengths. Oh,
0: the, I was about I was about to argue with you, but then I saw what you're getting at. So you're okay. it is a Doppler effect, but the the trailing of the of the, the the light the wavelength of light is due to a gravitational effect, not a, ve- a velocity effect.
1: Yeah, it's ex- it's exactly right. So, um, and we actually um observe many many galaxies where if you interpreted the redshift as a Doppler shift, the only way to get a redshift that high is to go faster than the speed of light.
0: That's right.
1: And a few people get hung up on this, they think what, so is the galaxies, are the galaxies move way faster than the speed of light? And the reason is it, that um, to, to, be, to be sort of strict about it, that it's really the distance between those galaxies, which is increasing. So the, the photon is losing potential energy as it's traveling towards us, and it's getting shifted to higher redshifts.
0: I've alf- I'm glad you brought that up. I've often explained it this way, and you can tell me if I'm doing it wrong. That it's not that these galaxies are racing away phys- in, at a velocity that's greater than the speed of light, but space time between us and that galaxy is being created at a rate that doesn't follow those same laws. It's not bound by the speed of light limit correct
1: yeah yeah exactly i think that's that's a that's a that's a good way to to describe yeah so 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 we know that nothing can move within space time faster than the speed of light that's right but um, there's no reason that space time itself can't expand at any speed it's like and you know we think um certainly during the inflation in the very early universe you know we think that's exactly what is happening
0: yeah. And you're right about that being a sticking point. And I'm glad you clarified that because it is, it is, it's an important distinction because you do get red shifts that indicate a velocity greater than the speed of light. If yep. you just took that at face value, but you need to re- realize there's lots of other physics going on here. And so, yeah,
1: so if, if you like, you, you can kind of think if, if it helps, you can kind of think of it as these galaxies are physically moving away from us. And it's like a Doppler shift. But strictly, it's not actually what's going on. It's really just that the distance between these galaxies is increasing. And that's um, causing this redshift of the photons.
0: And that's not bound by the, uh, the, by the laws of, of general relativity. So yeah, that's well, right. well
1: it, 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 that, that's dis- described by general relativity. But there's nothing in general relativity that says that space-time itself can't expand at any speed of
0: excellent okay great well so just l- now let's describe now we, we've set a, v- a very good stage here i think for the science yeah, yeah. and what's going on let's talk about the dark energy survey and your observations describe for us what you did or what the dark energy survey did and what data you were you you used to write your paper and then yeah, we're going to so- talk about what answer you got
1: <laughs> yeah. so From, from a, um, observational point of view the um the dark. We've got a great set up with the, um, the dark energy survey. So yeah, we've got this telescope in uh, Chile and it's observing the same small patches of sky um, several times a week and looking for that brightness. And when, um, when they find um, something that's got a light curve that looks like a supernova, we say, okay, we think that's a supernova. And from that light curve, um, we can work out the... Um, the, the, the distance and stuff like that. So the second piece of the puzzle that we need is the um, redshift. Um, and th- this is where I think the survey is uh, is a sort of really neat feature of the survey. So um, I spent a few years working in um, Australia and there's a almost identical telescope to the one in Chile in um, Australia, the um, the AAT telescope. Um, and this telescope is essentially exactly the same. The, the, they were both built at exactly the same time the mirrors were kind of made in the same factory next to each other. Um, But at the AAT, instead of having a camera, um, it's got a spectrograph, Ah, a really, really great spectrograph. So when things have been found in Chile, um, if they're interesting, then we can go and get the spectra, so the the, the full distribution of the wavelength of the light with the AAT in Australia. Um, And it's a really exciting operation because we might be finding supernovae and finding new targets um, in Chile in, in one night. And then as the sun rises in Chile and we come get to nighttime in Australia, we can follow them up you know, really quickly um, with the spectroscopic telescope in Australia. So it's, it's a really exciting, it's actually quite a, um, a, a slick operation. Out. And with those two telescopes, that's how we get the distance from the light curve in Chile. And then we get the redshift from the spectra um the uh, aat in australia
0: and so you coordinated with this telescope in australia if you did an observatory if you looked at a certain field on a certain night then you would make sure that the one in australia also looked at that night
1: oh yeah sure so so um there's there's been a lot of work in getting that um coordination working very uh smoothly and making sure that we prioritize the right things to get uh the spectra of um, and a lot of people work very hard on that and it's um it, you know, it now works very, very nicely
0: as a system. okay. I'm going to ask you a couple of questions you may not know the answer to because oh, okay. you may not be you may not know the engineering as or mm-hmm. the technical details of the okay, folks. well, it looks like we had a little bit of a streaming problem. and when I was recording this podcast, the uh, stream just died for for the YouTube viewers. and so it got restarted after the stream was whatever was caused it to stop, restarted again. So, I have the second part of that recording here, but I had to splice it together and get back on track again. So that's why you notice a little bit of a discontinuity, but you know, that's what happens when we're live. So luckily I had the recording and was able to piece together back the audio. So thanks for your patience. And here we go again. But it says YouTube is fine. So I'm going to continue back where we were. Um, All right um <clears throat> so we were talking about the way in which observe the way we were talking about the uh decam uh, uh observing sequence and how important it is for when you're in when it's in supernova mode to get the uh the cadence just right so you can get that peak of the of the supernova curve that's what we were talking about and i don't know where exactly it cut off so we will uh i want to just talk uh, I, basically they, they do 40 minute exposures, uh, on a given supernova observing run and they will work to get the light curve of the supernova, which I showed you earlier in the hangout now, m- but, but one thing that I was surprised by is that I thought the, um, I thought the, uh, when, when DES was online and taking data, that it just did it the same way every time so what it does when it's in supernova mode is different than what you're doing when you're in dark energy mode
1: yeah yeah, exactly so there's there's um, a wide field of the dark energy survey um which is where most of the well you know where the other dark energy science is being done so um looking for um, gravitational lensing and that sort of stuff and then we have four very small deep patches in the dark energy survey and those are the only um, regions where we're looking with that really high cadence to try and find the uh, supernova. Yeah, okay. so in, so yeah, they, exactly. They, there's kind of these two different modes: um, one for finding the supernova, and then the other one for doing the other dark energy science.
0: Okay, all right. And uh, uh, you guys don't look at this stuff uh, manually; you use software, presumably. So this inter- this the, all of this data comes down on a given night, uh, and um, Uh, you use software to tell you, hey, there's a supernova going on, right? Mm -hmm. Okay, all right. Uh, Uncle B, uh, Uncle Bill is like, You came back on a completely different URL. Is this why we don't see the YouTube chat? Probably. Uh, what happens when the stream gets interrupted on YouTube is it's and it starts again on it goes into a completely different URL, so I don't have time to find it, but I do have. Uh, the uh, restream chat here. So I am seeing your chat uh, questions. I saw James Dugan go, the sun playing up again. Uh, great on Discord from, from Andy Cow- Cowley. James Reven is going, could be a targeted attack on the stream. <laughs> and so I can see those. What I would like to know though is where the stream cut off. If somebody can tell me what we were talking about because uh, Larry Keese is going, did he ever answer the two questions? I don't know what he's talking about. What questions are you talking about? And I'll re ask them if if it didn't uh if it didn't take. So um okay. So uh now you've did you look at data for the entire uh for your paper again. Mm-hmm. The did the data that you used, was it from the latest data release for the I think I think you're on data release two now, right?
1: Yeah, so it, we actually just looked at data from the first three years of the survey um and you know of course we've got the, the full five year uh you know which is now finished so uh so yeah there, there is sort of more data to come this isn't actually the, the full data set from the dark energy
0: survey yeah it's important to remember how these things work you get all this data <laughs> and you're sitting on a yeah. computer somewhere but you've still got to crunch this through i mean people are still going through kepler data for goodness sake so oh, yeah, yeah yeah so this this stuff takes a while so um oh, yeah, yeah. all right so the um uh okay so i'm I'm too busy reading these questions i need to to, to concentrate on the, the the flow of the conversation here the now i want to know um what what did you get let's talk about hubble h naught the number we yeah. all care about this is the rate of the expansion of the universe you want to describe h yeah. naught for us and then tell us what
1: you got yeah, sure, exactly. So, so just to describe H0 a bit, the, the way the unit works is um, we report it as, and again, this is why it's a bit confusing, because the units actually are reported in terms of a speed, um, you know, partly for sort of historical reasons, even though, um, you know, it's not actually a Doppler the shift. The, the units are reported as, as if it is. So um, the units are, um, what would be the, the effective speed of two galaxies, which are separated by distance of uh, one megaparsec. So a megaparsec—that's kind of the typical distances between uh, galaxies. Um, and um, so the units are—you is, is, know—if you, if you think you know feet and miles per hour, back, this is—it's such a mix-up of units. So the units are kilometers per second. So that's the speed.
0: Yeah, we get yeah, that's pretty—that's pretty familiar. <laughs>
1: yeah. So it's kilometers per second per megaparsecs. So it's saying if we have two galaxies separated by one megaparsec, how fast will it look like they're moving apart in a speed of kilometers per second? Yes. Um, and this is a value which we can essentially predict with our cosmological model and observations of the very, very early universe. So observations from the cosmic microwave background. So if we take those observations Um, And they tell us about the ingredients of the universe. And the key one is how much matter is there in the universe, the density of matter. And that's something we can measure really well. And if we take that density and our model of the universe, lambda CDM, it predicts that um, Hubble's constant should be um, about 68 kilometers per second per megaparsec. Um, I worked out how fast at uh, sixty-eight kilometers per second is in uh, miles per hour. It's one hundred and fifty-two thousand miles per hour. Well, thank,
0: uh, thank you, thank you for pandering uh, to the US. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Well, actually, the UK uses miles per hour too. So to, we be, use miles to, per to be fair, hour. yeah. <laughs>
1: it's such a mashup of units. Yeah. So, uh, that's just just what we've
0: got. Now you said something quite interesting. You said that the the if you if you Use models of lambda. What was it called again? Lambda.
1: So our, our, our current best model um, for cosmology is called Lambda CDM. That, that's the name of the. And
0: that's a density. That's a density number uh, for the universe, essentially, right?
1: Um. So, the, uh, 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 probably one of the single most important feature of Lambda CDM. Yeah, is is the density of matter. So, um, yeah, it's essentially how many atoms of or, or you know the, the the weight of matter in a in a given volume.
0: And you said that using those models, the answer is about you get about for a H not sixty eight kilometers per second per megaparsec.
1: Yeah, exactly right. Yeah.
0: And what did With you? An and,
1: error of less than one percent. So you know you know really quite a but a precise prediction.
0: And you and, and and is that what you found in your paper?
1: Yeah, and what we found in our measurement is it, it agrees just. Um, almost uncannily well with what you would predict um, from, uh, from that. Yeah.
0: Well, hang on. I thought there was this thing called a, 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 a conundrum, a, a universal expansion uh, conundrum, where everybody using type 1A supernovae in the past were getting numbers much higher than that, like on the order oh, of 73 sure. and, and kilometers per is,
1: second. Um, th- this is kind of where the, the puzzle starts to get really um, exciting. So when we were talking about how these supernovae are all um, standard candles, and we know the brightness of them. Um, there's an extra kind of twist on that. Um, and it's not so much that we know exactly what the um, brightness is, but we know that they're all the same brightness. So it's, a, it's not like someone's telling us, oh, it's a 60 watt light bulb. These are all a bunch of 60 watt light bulbs. It's like someone's telling us, OK, they're all the same light bulb, but I'm not going to tell you if it's a 20 watt light bulb, or a hundred watt light bulb. So there's another piece of the puzzle where we have to calibrate the, um, the intrinsic brightness. So we have to figure out essentially what's the wattage of the supernovae. So traditionally, um, you know, starting with Hubble and, uh, and going on, uh, they've been calibrated by comparing the brightness of supernovae to the brightness of the Cepheid variable stars so we had so they, um and this is something that um, um adam rees who's uh, one of the uh, famous discoverers of dark energy that's what he's really been pioneering recently so he's been looking for galaxies where there are cepheid variable stars so you can use that to work out the distance to the galaxy and also a type 1a supernova so from the cepheid variable star you know the distance to that galaxy and then because there's also a 1a going off in there you can use that to calibrate the brightness, the, the the intrinsic brightness. So as well as knowing that they're all the same, you can say, okay, it's a a particular brightness, and that's how you get that H naught value of seventy four.
0: Okay, so this idea that all Type one A supernovae are the same brightness is is key here. Not that we know what that actual brightness is; we just know that of all the Type one A supernovae that can be seen. Mm-hmm. They are the same brightness, whatever that is.
1: Yeah, And exactly. you
0: use these Cepheid variable observations to get that brightness
1: mm-hmm.
0: for that particular galaxy. And then yeah. you can... and, and
1: this is it's what's called the, 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 the cosmological distance ladder. Because the, the, the idea, it, it's, a, it's sort of, if you, if you imagine you um sort of combining different ladders together, and you've got a to time together with bits of string where they overlap, that's kind of the analogy. So... We need to find out the distance to the c which is done with parallax. And then from the C-FIDs, um, then they can go to the uh, Type 1A supernovae.
0: Now, when Adam Rees first did, he won the Nobel Prize for this. So when he first did his work on Type 1A supernovae and measured the acceleration of the universe, yeah. which was a complete surprise, uh, he did not have this calibration technique going, right? Mm-hmm. And so that's why, is that why the number is higher in, in those studies?
1: Yeah. So um, the, 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 dif- the, the difference between what he's doing now, looking at H naught and what he was doing, you know, back in sort of 98, um, looking for dark energy. So um, you can actually, to, to study dark energy, you don't actually need to know the absolute calibration of the supernovae you can say, okay, the universe is, the expansion of the universe is accelerating without knowing in absolute terms what the acceleration is. Um, So you don't actually need these nearby 1As where you can calibrate them in order to to look at dark energy. So actually back in the late 90s, those um, um, supernova cosmologists were typically looking at more distant supernovae um, and... and, um, it's actually a slightly different regime to the more nearby stuff that you'd want to do a uh, direct measurement of H naught.
0: Okay, so that makes sense. I mean, okay, so you don't need to know exactly what... The, what h naught is to know that things are accelerating as they go away yeah, from exactly each other right you so right. but but if you do want to get a handle on this h naught parameter properly then you need all these other calibration well not all of these you just there's just yeah. one other calibration technique which is i did yeah. not this is fascinating i did not know about <laughs> yeah, this Cepheid so. variable business i first of all i didn't know that you could see Cepheid variables very far away how far away are these galaxies we're talking about that adam reese is using
1: I think we're talking... In Z terms. ...a few megaparsecs. Few oh, megaparsecs. so
0: they're close. They're pretty close.
1: Um, yeah, so in, in sort of cosmological terms, it, it, it's pretty close. But, um, um, yeah, yeah. you know, these, these galaxies are quite rare, and you, you really need the best telescopes you can. You know, I mean, Hubble Space Telescope is... Um, you know, uh, right, he he
0: does work at the Institute of Yeah Space exactly. Telescope Science, so yeah, he he gets access to Hubble. I'm sure yeah. whenever he wants it, <laughs> but uh, but uh, uh, but that's still pretty close by. I mean, club, you're right. You still, I mean, even with Hubble, you're still going to be. Mm-hmm. And, and it seems to me also that not only do you need to be able to measure these cepheid variables accurately from very far away, but you also need to have a super Type One A supernova going off. H- how rare is that event? Ha- having them both.
1: And oh yeah, yeah. It, it it's pretty rare, I think they found in the ballpark of forty fifty that 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 kind of number okay um, so yeah, yeah. It, it 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 is pretty rare, and part of, uh, something that some people have proposed as to why maybe the value they're finding is different is maybe there's something going on with the one as or the environment that they're living in in that very kind of relatively nearby part of the universe that's accounting for the difference. Uh, but, you know, it, it, it is a mystery. We, you know, we don't know what exactly what it's causing us.
0: Okay. Well, you, so I think this is amazing news. And um, the fact that your number from the dark energy survey, now you used calibrated brightnesses then, didn't you, or did you?
1: Yeah. But the, the, the re- one of the big things that was different is that we use a completely different method to calibrate the, bright, the intrinsic brightness of our 1x. Uh, so if I was going to sort of point to one thing that's the, that's the big difference, you know, I, I'd say it's that. It's that we use a, a, a radically different way to calibrate. Instead of making this distance ladder, which starts nearby and works out, we actually start at very, very distant things and then work in. Um, so, we, so we kind of call it that an inverse distance ladder.
0: Okay. Wow. So, uh, I was, (laughs) I was going to talk about this conundrum thing, but I think you've already solved it. So it, 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 there, before I had this hangout with you, I was of the understanding that there were the the ways there there are two different ways of measuring currently there's about to be a mm-hmm. third using gravitational waves we'll get to that in a minute but there's currently two main ways of measuring the h uh, naught one of them was using standard candles which you've mm-hmm. done here and the second one is using these things called baryon acoustic oscillations in mm-hmm. the cosmic microwave background and that's done with data from the well, primarily from Planck, but also from other places who measure the cosmic microwave background. I don't wanna go into it too much because uh, we're running out of time. I, I've been so fascinated by everything else, but can you give us a brief, maybe maybe tell us <laughs> in the simplest way you know how, how they use the cosmic microwave background to measure the expansion rate? Sure,
1: sure. So um, um and acoustic oscillations, there's something that we observe in this very distant cosmic microwave background. And it's also something that we observe in the distribution of galaxies much more uh, nearby. Um, and um, I, I guess the, the best place to start is, whereas supernovae are standard candles, so there's something that we know the brightness of, um, baron acoustic oscillations, um, they're what we call a standard ruler. So this is um, something that we think we know the, the intrinsic size. And then, with geometry, by observing the size, we can say, okay, with a bit of geometry, that that must fix the distance.
0: Okay, hang on, I'm going to try and restate it to see if yeah. I've got what you yeah, just said. Yeah, sure. So, when you look at the cosmic a map of the cosmic microwave background, you see all these red and blue things. Yeah, yeah. And if you there is a there is a if you measure those features in a way that. You, you measure them somehow. You get something called a standard ruler because there are because this happened at a specific time in the history of the universe. About what is it? Three hundred and eighty thousand years after the Big Bang, something like that. Then, then, but you know, if if a certain if something in that map is a certain distance away from each other, there a certain length, and then we we can use that as a starting point.
1: Yeah, yeah. So so those blobs that we're talking about, they're about, what, one degree in angular size. So, you know, if we had microwave vision eyes, we'd see them as kind of one degree kind of blobs. So I guess what about the size of, of the moon? Um, yeah, and that early universe where um, that we see in the cosmic microwave background, so the whole universe is a very hot plasma, uh, and the whole universe is very similar to to what we we see now on on the surface of our own sun. So in terms of temperature and what it's made out of, it's really just this very hot um, hydrogen. Uh, So then theoretically, we can work out the physical size, the, the physical wavelength of sound waves that were traveling through this very hot plasma. So we all know that there's no sound in space now, but in the very early universe, when the universe was so much smaller it was dense enough that sound waves could travel through. So it's this very hot, dense plasma of stuff that sound waves are traveling through. Um, And we can theoretically work out um, the wavelength. Um, And that's what we see imprinted in those blue and red dots um, when we look at the cosmic microwave background.
0: And how does that help us with the expansion rate?
1: Okay, so the the next um, piece of the puzzle is that these sound waves in the very, very early universe made parts of the universe that were slightly more dense and slightly underdense, And those dense regions are where the galaxies formed, and the underdense regions are where we find the voids. So what we find when we look in the more recent universe is that these cosmic sound waves are essentially imprinted in the distribution of galaxies. So if you look at uh, what these beautiful maps of galaxies that you get from Sloan and stuff like that, I mean, they, they look very beautiful, but there's actually structure in there. Um, and because of this sound wave, we're actually more, slightly more likely to find galaxies which are separated by this wavelength, and it's, it's 147 megaparsecs. So we're, we're 1% more likely to find galaxies separated by 147 megaparsecs than 140 megaparsecs. Or 140 Five We're very slightly more likely to find galaxies at that exact separation.
0: Wow! I don't know if you teach at the University of Portsmouth, but if you don't, it's a crime because I think for the first time I actually get this. Uh, so that and that's a, that's a baryon acoustic. It, it's it, that's
1: the baryon acoustic slope,
0: and that is how it's imprinted in the current universe. We can and then we can run that distance back to see how the expansion rate is, is, is what it was like now versus then. Yeah, exactly. and, that's
1: it's the next step, yeah.
0: Oh, man, that's thank you. Okay, so that gets a number that has characteristically been, I think you told me, 67 kilometers per second per megaparsec. Uh-huh. You, so there was a difference for a while. There was this 67 kilometers per second per megaparsec that was found with Baryon acoustic oscillations, and then there was a 73 or so one that used just type 1A supernova That were not calibrated with Cepheid variables. And these were a problem because everybody thought they knew their numbers to within error bars that did not overlap. And so somebody had to be wrong. And it looks like it was the Type 1A supernova guys not using the calibrated Cepheid variable brightness, right?
1: I wouldn't want to say somebody has to be wrong, though. That's. uh,
0: Well, okay, but these observations were done with error bars that were in, what'd you say, 1%, 1.5? Yeah, yeah, yeah Okay, so <laughs> that's a pretty sure I, value. You're pretty sure yourself at one and a half. Yeah,
1: yeah. I, I, I think w- what these measurements are telling us um, is that we're missing a piece. We're, we're missing something interesting with something that is going on here. And maybe it's exciting new physics, or maybe there's, there's just something in some of these observations that, that we're, just not, we're just not getting yet.
0: Okay, all right. Uh,
1: but I, 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 think it's at the stage now where all of the observations are so well understood that, um, it, it just doesn't look like ah, we're missing something, or, um, yeah, it looks like we're we, we we're going to have to learn something interesting in order to figure this out.
0: But wait a minute, hang on. This is pretty, There's still there's still a pretty good agreement now. What, did I miss something when you said oh, we, there's okay. something we so, still don't understand? So, so
1: we find excellent agreement with, 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 with Planck. Right. But there's still this disagreement with what um, Adam Rees is finding okay. in the very local universe by calibrating to see fits Right. But I thought you just... We, we, we're really pretty sure about... How this calibration to CFIDs works. It's because you know, we, we can measure uh, parallax very well, you know, that's kind of geometry. That's we right. can measure the brightness very well. So it's actually a very clean measurement to, um, to get out to um, these CFIDs and the type 1As. So it's, it's still, a, if anything, a bigger mystery as to why that doesn't match up with the other stuff that we're seeing.
0: Oh really? So, mm-hmm. th- while the close-in, uh, relatively close-in observations that are calibrated uh, have a number, the fact that they are so different from the ones Adam Rees got in the nineties is a cause of concern.
1: So, so the supernova Adam we looking at in the, in, in the nineties, that they're, they're not really what you want to be using for um H not because they're not necessarily in the same galaxies that we'd be finding see in. That's but, right. Um, yeah, we're, what we what we're seeing is is. Our results are looking into a, a slightly more distant part of the universe than the very local um, kind of seafood results. And that's saying, okay, at these distances, the universe is still expanding um, in a way that's consistent with observations from Planck and our Lambda CDM model. And then if you go a little bit further forwards in time to the kind of parts of the cosmic time that um, sort of Adam look looked at, then you get this faster expansion. So if any questions like, okay, how? How has that happened? Does the, does the universe very, very recently suddenly start expanding or, you know, are we still missing something in, you know, you know, maybe there's something missing in how we've done our calibration. Um, you no, know, you know, we, we think we've we sort of um, accounted for everything, but maybe in calibrating to the BAOs, there's something that nobody knows about um, at the moment. So I'd say, if anything, the, the, the kind of plot has got thicker and, and kind of more interesting.
0: Okay, but, but yeah, yeah it,
1: It's it's certainly not uh, certainly not away.
0: Okay, Superluminal, I see your question and I'm going to ask it. I'm also mm-hmm. going to ask yours Andrew Planet, but I by, I just have one more quick thing I want to bring up and then well you don't have to spend a lot of time on it Ed, but the okay. so that we we do have another player on the field now. Besides BAOs and type 1A supernovae and C-feed variables, we all we now have what are hopefully going to be more observations of colliding neutron stars and med, and their consequent they're consequential gravitational waves. Um, are you excited about, so this is coming from LIGO. Let me just mention that briefly. LIGO just came back online. They're hoping to see with this new improved sensitivity that they now have more neutron star collisions. They've seen one and they've gotten an answer for H naught based on that one that they've seen, but the air bars are huge. So are you just maybe if you know something about it, maybe tell us briefly what they're doing and then, uh, Tell me how confident you are that might help out the situation.
1: Oh, sure, sure. So this is, this is super exciting. So um, these gravitational waves, when two gravitational wave sources like uh, neutron stars collide, they give us uh, what's called a standard siren. So That's right. You know, <laughs> the sort of standard candle. sort of the standard really see the size. The standard candle, it, it, it really is something where you can kind of see the, the, the strength of that gravitational wave signal. And that gives us the, um, the distance um, you also need the redshift, so it has to, to occur in something that will give off some light that we can follow up and get a redshift from. So things like black hole in spirals, um, they're probably not going to be so good for this. But yeah, something like two neutron stars in spiraling, um, yeah, and you know, that, that, that's something which has been done. And you get the distance, and you get the redshift. And what's beautiful about it is in one step, you can get a value for h naught. Um, so um, I think they can evaluate, it's basically 70 plus or minus kind of 10% at the moment.
0: Yeah, that's what Just I read, 70 kilometers per second 100%. per megaparsec. So, you
1: know, it, it, it's really... Um, which, it, at, yeah, it's, which at the time really, I
0: read that was right in between the two numbers, right? It was um, like, man. <laughs> it's amazing. About
1: 70. Uh, it, yeah.
0: Well, and and so you're obviously very excited about uh, seeing this. They've They've improved the sensitivity such that they're hoping to see quite a few more of these neutron star collisions in the coming... Years, so I don't know how long this current configuration is going to be operating, but it's a, it's they've just upgraded the sensor, the sensors to be more sensitive to this. So we will keep the uh, keep our eye out. Okay, let me ask a couple of questions. Superluminal. Uh, asked Tony this before, but if the universe had a finite size at t plus one, t plus two, t plus three seconds after the Big Bang, is it just it, and it's just been expanding ever since? Doesn't that mean the universe is finite? <laughs> so it had a size at t plus one yeah. t plus two and it kept we kept getting bigger, but here we've only been going for thirteen point seven or nine or whatever it is billion years. Uh, it's a certain size now around I think forty seven billion light years in radius. Mm-hmm. Doesn't that mean it's finite?
1: yeah, okay, so there's um th- th- there's a couple of things there so first of all um, when we talk about the size of the universe, we can mean a few things. So we can mean uh, the kind of observable universe, so the parts of the universe we can observe. And yeah, that that definitely has a finite size. There's only so far um, in the universe um, that we, we can see. So, you know, there, there is a distance to the cosmic microwave background and we can't see uh, beyond that. Um, that doesn't necessarily mean that the universe has a... Um, a finite size. So the universe might be infinite, it might have a finite size. Uh, neither of those mean that the universe has an edge. Uh, if you think about the surface of a sphere, um, you can draw a circle on the surface of the sphere and that has a, a certain radius and you can make that bigger and bigger. Um, the sphere doesn't have an edge, you know, you need kind of keep on going around it like that. Uh, the radius of the sphere can be bigger and bigger or smaller and smaller. Uh, but there's still no edge to the surface of the sphere. So um, We think the geometry of the universe might be something like that, but instead of just on a surface of the sphere um, you, know, you know with more, uh, you know, with three space dimensions um, So yeah, there's, there's not there's not probably almost certainly not a kind of hard edge to the observable universe um, if, if, if that if that sort of helps
0: yeah it's it I, I i appreciate your trying and every time i try to visualize it i never can but the the uh the the that's where you say that it's uh finite but unbounded or something like that right i mean if, it's if un- i
1: can if i can make one point which i found super super helpful. you, you probably heard that the expansion of the universe it's like inflating a balloon yeah stars on it the key thing about that analogy is that The space of the universe is just the surface of the balloon. It's not the whole volume. In this analogy, um, there's just two dimensions of space, which is the surface of the balloon. So um, that surface is getting bigger and bigger, but the analogy, it's just the surface of the balloon. It's not the the kind of whole balloon. It's um, It's a kind of useful analogy, but if you think about it as like the actual balloon, you it, it can get a bit sort of
0: misleading. Yeah, that's a good that's a good analogy because the, the the other analogy everybody always uses is this raisin bread. You you have to you know right, right you have to be careful. The raisins are on the surface of the balloon, and that's the galaxies. We're not talking about the inside. Yeah, of the Yeah, yeah. The
1: raisins are on the surface. Of the
0: balloon. <laughs> yeah. Okay, Andrew Planet. Uh, the evenly distributed megaparsecs distance of galaxies mean that the Big Bang was equidistant at all sides. At the beginning, mm-hmm. is that what that means? The the evenly distributed megaparsec yeah. distance of so, the galaxies. Um,
1: so, so, what what is incredible, and I think this is one of the most mind blowing facts, is that the large scale distribution of the of the galaxies that we observe today is directly caused by, in part, the initial conditions of the Big Bang. Um, and we can actually infer things about the initial conditions of the Big Bang by looking at the large-scale distribution of galaxies which I you know I just think is completely mind-blowing. Yeah um, So um, so galaxies are randomly distributed in the universe So it, they're not like sort of laid out on a on a kind of even lattice, they they are randomly distributed um, but um, and so you 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 may fairly um, say this is counterintuitive, but um you can kind of have different kinds of random. So even though they're random, there is still this preference that we're slightly more likely to um, find galaxies separated by a specific distance.
0: Sure, there's patterns in randomness. There always have been. Yeah, so exactly, yeah. exactly. If
1: you think about maybe uh, you've got white noise and pink noise and brown noise. These are all random noise, right? But they have a different spectrum, um, and we think that essentially the the spectrum of The distribution of matter in the universe, which we see in galaxies, um, was um, seeded by quantum fluctuations in the primordial universe, which imprinted this kind of randomness. And then when the universe um, expanded in inflation, those quantum random fluctuations got imprinted in the very, very large scale of the universe that we can now trace out with, uh, with galaxies. So by tracing out the position of these galaxies, we can actually trace back to the these quantum fluctuations in the earliest moments of the universe, which I you know, I, I just think it, it's incredible. It's, it's yeah, that brilliant.
0: is, it is incredible. Yeah. The amount of information we're able we're able to get out of all kinds of things in astronomy has oh, always been impressive, impressive yeah. to me. Uh, and this is no, this is no exception. So, all right, well, we're going to have to stop there because we're out of time. My guest sure, today was please. Edward McCauley from the university of Portsmouth. He's a member of the Institute of cosmology and gravitation there. He's also a member of the dark energy survey collaboration and, and published a paper, the link to which is in the description box. If you would like to read the work he did on type 1a supernovae supernova and getting a new value for h naught, which it is using uh, Cepheid variable calibrations to get an number that is, uh, I think, going a long way toward helping us understand uh, this conundrum of the differences between the different various ways people are measuring the expansion rate of the universe. However, it does open more questions, as he pointed out, that now, well, why is it so different <laughs> than what they got before? So, uh, as with all things in science, we get more uh, questions as we go along. Um, are you going to use – I, I just got to ask this. Are you going to use James Webb at all when it's launched? Do you think that's going to shed any light on this on this well, trouble? Well,
1: James Webb is going to be absolutely incredible. Um, I, I, I think – we can probe. My, my, my hunch is that we can scarcely begin to imagine the things that James Webb described.
0: Okay, that's what everybody says, and because, I agree. I'm very excited uh, about it.
1: Going to this deep infrared, and at the moment, we, we, we just have essentially almost no information about what the universe is like. So, I, I think, um, I, I mean, uh, probably the, 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 the most useful thing I can say is that dark energy was, you know, uh, um, one of the, the things we got from the Hubble Space Telescope. And no one was thinking about dark energy when the Hubble Space. No. Stopped, you know? <laughs> um, so I, I think we, could, we can't even begin to imagine what James Webb is going yeah. to
0: discover. OK, well, uh, I'll leave it there. And I want to thank you for your patience on the stream, folks. What I'm going to do is right now it looks like there's two URLs for this stream, I'm going to download them both stitch them together and repost them as one URL. In the meantime, uh, you'll have to kind of go back and forth between the two streams. My apologies, what happened is I understand it is my Wirecast software just suddenly threw an error and stopped streaming. And whenever you do that on YouTube, it closes the other stream. And then when you start up again, it starts an entirely new stream. And so that's what happened here. I will get all of this hopefully on Twitch and Periscope that did not happen. So we will see how that, that plays out, but I'm going to want to thank you all so much for watching. And just a reminder, I'm going to be in New York next week in Times Square, trying to image with telescopes, uh, from the OPT telescopes. Uh, we're going to be looking through their triad filter and, uh, taking images of galaxies from the center of Times Square. So I'll be streaming some of that live. I'll also be posting lots of videos on YouTube. So check out that as well and carol christian will be back in the next uh, uh astro copy hangout she's currently in a at a meeting somewhere in europe and i forgot which one so that's where she is and on behalf of carol christian and and my ed mccauley i want to thank you all so much for watching and as always keep looking up